Please open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Starting from the front of your Bible, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. This time, our 12th time in Joshua, we will look at Joshua 21. Joshua 21. However, much like the last time, I'm going to ask you to turn to many other texts with me. Now, the last time we were in Joshua together, we looked at Joshua 20 and the cities of refuge. These were the six cities in Israel that you could run to if you killed someone by accident. Now in Joshua 21, we're going to learn about even more cities. Remember that we are still in this section of Joshua that has very few stories, mostly lists and regulations, but more lists than anything. This is, however, and fortunately, the last chapter of this section, the last chapter that's like this. Chapters 1 through 12 are mostly stories of how Israel entered and took the land. Chapters 13 through 21 describe how that land was allotted to each of the 12 tribes for settlement. And all the tribes except one have received their inheritance by this point. And so today, Joshua 21 is going to focus our attention on that last tribe. Now, if you're in Joshua 21, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now, the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh in Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in, with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. The first lot came out for the Kohathites, according to their clans. The Levites, who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, were allotted 13 towns from the tribe, tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The rest of Kohath's descendants were allotted 10 towns from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and half of Manasseh. The descendants of Gershon were allotted 13 towns from the clans of the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. The descendants of Merari, according to their clans, received 12 towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So the Israelites allotted to the Levites these towns and their pasture lands, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, instead of reading verses 9 through 40, which I would encourage you to do this afternoon as a little bit of light reading, I want to just explain to you what happens in these verses. These verses, verses 9 through 40, simply give us the names of all the cities that are given to the tribe of Levi. And the end result is that there are Levitical cities all over the land of Israel. There is no Levitical or Levite region like there is a Judah region or a Benjamin region or a Dan region. There is, there is none of that. Rather, there are now going to be 48 cities scattered across Israel for the people of the tribe of Levi. And by the way, six of those 48 cities are the cities of refuge. Now, let's read verse 41. The towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it. This was true for all these towns. 
Now, <clears throat> as I've been reading this, I think, it's, I think it's easy enough to understand what happened here. Okay? It's easy to read this chapter and quickly explain that you know, years earlier, the Lord had commanded that the tribe of Levi be given cities instead of getting their own region in the promised land. And now, after all the other tribes have received their land allotment, the tribe of Levi comes asking for these cities that God had promised. And so Joshua and Eleazar the priests oversee the allotments of these 48 cities uh, to Levi from all the other tribes. This is what happened in Joshua 21, and you probably all gathered that fairly easily. What's harder to see What's actually, I would say, missing or maybe assumed in Joshua 21 is why. Okay. Why do the other tribes get a region, but the tribe of Levi gets cities scattered all across Israel? Why did God treat this tribe differently than all the rest? And so finding the answer to this question is what's going to take us to many different texts today. So please turn with me, first of all, to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. We're going to move all around the Old Testament today. I want you to see these things with me. So turn, first of all, to Genesis 49. Now, I don't know how much you know about the, the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Levi traces their lineage back to a man called Levi. He was the great-grandson of Abraham, the grandson of Isaac, and the third son of Jacob. The man Levi is remembered really for one thing. He's remembered for what he and his brother Simeon did to the city of Shechem. When a man of Shechem raped Levi's sister Dinah, the sons of Jacob convinced the men of Shechem to be circumcised so that the man who wanted Dinah could marry her. But while the men of Shechem were recovering from their circumcision and could not fight, Simeon and Levi took revenge for their sister and killed every man in the city of Shechem. Now I ask you to turn to Genesis 49. You see, in, in this chapter, Levi's father Jacob is about to die, and he makes a famous prophecy about each of his children, his sons. So look in uh, chapter 49, verse 5. And what he says about Simeon and Levi, notice he takes them together. He says, Simeon and Levi, verse 5, are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. No doubt the violence of Simeon and Levi that Jacob is referencing here at least includes what they did earlier when they killed all the men of the city of Shechem. And the consequence for this violence is a curse from their father on his deathbed, so to speak. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so Jacob is prophesying that in some sense, Simeon and Levi are going to be scattered in the land of Israel among the tribes. Now, turn with me to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Years have passed since Jacob's prophecy about Simeon and Levi. 
Jacob's children, the people of Israel, have multiplied many, many times over. And the Lord has just saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now Israel is camped around Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, and the people are down below at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. In Exodus 32, starting in verse 26, Moses has come down from the mountain. He's discovered Israel's idolatry, and he says, verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Verse 27. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Verse 28. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So Levi is violent again. But unlike the man Levi, this time the tribe of Levi has actually called to this violence by God, by Moses, to fight against idolatry. And because the tribe of Levi fights for the Lord, even when it means taking life within Israel, because they fought for the Lord, they are granted a special service. Look at verse 29. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So the tribe of Levi, condemned by their father's actions to be scattered all across Israel, is now also set apart for a special service to God. Now, what is that going to look like? What are they going to do? It's not going to be anything to do with the military. No military service for Levi. In fact, when the people of Israel are counted for military service at the beginning of Numbers, Levi is not allowed to be counted because they're not going to serve in the military. Rather, the Lord has set apart this tribe, as he says in Deuteronomy, to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name. That will be their service. Now, day to day, this is going to look like what we see in Deuteronomy 33. So go ahead and turn there with me, Deuteronomy 33. What does this special service look like day to day for the Levites? You see, the Lord had had chosen one family from the tribe of Levi to be the priests of his sanctuary, the family of Aaron's line, Moses' brother. Now the rest of the tribe of Levi is going to assist the priests in, in the sanctuary. And this means that Uh, While Israel is on the way to the promised land with a mobile sanctuary, the tabernacle is a mobile sanctuary, the Levites are responsible for for taking down that tent, for moving it, and then setting it back up again for the priests. They're also responsible for, for guarding it and for guarding the priesthood. But Deuteronomy 33, where you've turned, expands even more on what their service is going to look like. Remember, In Genesis 49, Jacob made a prophecy about each of his sons, cursing both Simeon and Levi together. Now in Deuteronomy 33, Moses is going to do something similar. He's going to give this kind of final word of prophecy, final blessing to the tribes of Israel. This time, however, he doesn't address Simeon and Levi together. In fact, he doesn't address Simeon at all. Remember, Simeon is being scattered and kind of lost Amongst the tribes. Their inheritance actually exists inside the land of Judah. But look at what he says of Levi in Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. Moses says, They, 
the tribe of Levi, shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So look here at what the services are that God gives to the Levites. They are to teach Jacob God's rules and Israel God's law. Now this isn't a role of the Levites that we think about very often, nor do we see many mentions of it in the Old Testament. But we do see some of them. In fact, there's a good example of this much later. When Israel has returned from exile, they're back in the land. Ezra is reading the law before the people. And in Nehemiah 8, it says that the Levites helped the people to understand the law as they heard it read. Now, turn with me to Numbers 35. Numbers 35. The Levites have been given a teaching ministry to the people of Israel. And this is going to be an essential ministry, a very important ministry. Why? Because in Joshua's day, no one could stand up here and say, turn with me too. No one had a a personal copy of of Moses' writings or a personal copy of the law. And so as a result, it was essential for there to be people who knew the law well and who could teach it. But also remember that as the tribes are each given an allotment of land, they're going to start to disperse and to to scatter across Israel into their own segments or regions of land, effectively uh, moving everyone apart. So if Levi is given a region of land like everybody else, then you'll be basically gathering in one place all the people who know God's law the best. How much better for Israel would it be if if those who know the law best are actually scattered all over Israel and in various cities everywhere so that there's people all over the place who know God's law and can teach it to God's people. So look what God does in Numbers 35, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. So God shows his his wisdom here. This is the command from the Lord that has brought the Levites before Joshua and Eliezer on this day in Joshua 21. God is going to scatter Levi all across the land of Israel. But if the Levites are serving in this important teaching role, assisting the priests, all of this to deal with the worship of the Lord, And they're scattered all over the place. When are the Levites going to have time to work their crops, to work the land, and to provide for themselves? Everyone else has these large tracts of lands and cities, and they're going to be producing crops, providing for themselves. How is Levi going to do that when he has this other function? And that's a good question. Okay, Turn with me, I think this is the last one, to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. We've read now that Levi is going to be given cities and some pasture land, but that would not be their inheritance. The Lord himself is going to be Levi's inheritance. Deuteronomy 18, verse 1. It says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. 
They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised. So by, by being scattered all across the land, is Levi missing out? Are they being ripped off against all the other tribes? Are they missing out? With God's special servants, as they labor to serve God's people and teach them the law, are they going to be impoverished as a result of this ministry that they have? And the answer is no. Levi's inheritance is the Lord himself. The rest of the tribes would be supported by what the land produced. That was their inheritance. But the Levites would be supported by what the other tribes gave to the Lord. That, those offerings, those tithes would then be given to the Levites, freeing them up to serve the Lord and the people of Israel. And so you see what God has done here? Remember, all the way back in Genesis 49, we had a man who was cursed because of his violence, and his descendants were going to be scattered all across the land of Israel in judgment. And now God has taken that, and he is going to scatter Levi in fulfillment of that prophecy, but he's going to use that for the benefit of his people. And so now we're back in Joshua 21, where we started today, where Levi is going to be given 48 cities all across the land of Israel. The other tribes are going to give up these cities of their land to God. And God is going to then give these cities to the tribe of Levi. In other words, God's gift of these cities to Levi is really God's gift to the people of Israel. Israel needs the Levites to be scattered amongst them for the sake of their faith toward God, that they might walk in obedience to him. Now, We had to cover a lot of ground to kind of come back to Joshua 21 and understand more of the why behind what's going on here. Thank you if you kept turning with me each time. Again, it's not hard to understand what happened in Joshua 21, and now we know why this happened. Meaning we can describe the events that kind of led up to Joshua 21. But there's there's another why question that's really important to answer as we look at this chapter. And that is the question, why is God doing all this? We want to understand not only what led up to Joshua 21, but what does God want to come out of Joshua 21? Like what's his purpose, his end game in doing all this? Why is God working this way with the Levites? Why create the infrastructure in Israel to support a group of people who are scattered all across the land and whose function is to lead Israel in obedience to the law. Why do that? The answer is that God wants Israel to be a faithful covenant partner with him so that they can remain in the land and enjoy his rest. And so God has given the Levites to Israel to to nurture the faith of his people. God is concerned not only with bringing Israel into the land, but with keeping them in the land. And of course, the way Israel entered the land by faith is the way you stay in the land by faith in God. He wants Israel to love God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their strength. And so when I think about our context today, I've been encouraged from this story by God's concern for the faith of his people and the measures, the practical measures he takes to nurture the faith of his people. Of course, in the new covenant, through Jesus Christ, God has done so much more for our faith. He's given to us new hearts 
that believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And God also strengthens our faith faith through trials. But out of concern for our faith, God has done even more for us than this. And there are two other things I want to draw our attention to that God has done for the sake of our faith. This God who is concerned for the faith of his people, who takes practical measures to nurture that faith, he's done at least two more things, but there are many more. Number one, first, God has given us pastors. And indeed, like the Levites, pastors are to lead in teaching and obeying God's word. Also, pastors are supported financially by the people they serve so that they have the capacity for the special service. And furthermore, the purpose of their service is to nurture and protect your faith. Remember what the author of Hebrews said. He said, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Because God is concerned for your faith, God has given you pastors. Brian and I are by no means perfect. But Brian and I desire to give Jesus Christ a good account of how we watched for your souls, nurturing and protecting your faith. The weight of this measure that God has taken for your faith falls squarely upon us. And so I'd ask you to pray for your pastors and follow them as they follow Christ. But out of concern for your faith, God has done even more for you. Not only has he given to his people pastors, but he's also given to us each other. As James read this morning, the author of Hebrews said this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To think about the people in this room, the members of RBC, those who have committed to, the, to participating in the Christian fellowship that goes on here between worship gatherings, growth groups, uh, uh, community groups, etc. God has given these people to you to watch for your soul and to exhort you to protect your heart from the deceitfulness of sin. And if God wants them to share his concern for your soul, then he wants you to share his concern for theirs as well. All of this is why we say in our church covenant that we will honor the leadership of this church and exercise an affectionate care for one another, admonishing and encouraging one another as the occasion may require. And so I want to thank the Lord this morning for how he shows his concern for our faith in so many ways. But today, specifically, for how he has given to us both pastors and each other. And let's pray for each other, that we would be faithful to nurture and protect one another as God intends. Now, in Joshua 21, the last tribe of Israel has received their inheritance. And this is an incredible milestone for Israel in their history. And this milestone is marked by verses 43 to 45. If you're a person who likes to mark in their Bibles, these are the verses to mark. Perhaps, perhaps the most key verses in the book of Joshua. Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. 
Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So these words provide a a fitting conclusion to all of chapters 1 through 21. The story of how Israel was brought into the land, how they were given success over their enemies, and how they have now been allotted an inheritance. That story is finished. But these verses not only finish that story, they also celebrate it. Four times the author uses the word all. The Lord gave Israel all the land. Not one of all their enemies withstood them. Not one word of all God's promises failed. And all came to pass. There's no mistaking that God has done everything he said he would do for Israel as he brought them into the land. In other words, there's no opportunity for someone to look at what happened in Joshua 1 through 21 and say, look, God failed right here. He didn't do what he said he would do for his people. Look as hard and as long as you want. You won't find an example. Now, perhaps you're thinking, wait a second. I was listening months ago when we talked about that little city that beat Israel. So surely that's an example where God didn't do what he said he would do. And I would say yes and no. You're right that Israel fought and lost that battle to the little city of Ai. But you're wrong that this is an example of God failing to keep his promise. In fact, it proves the exact opposite. Israel's loss in battle against Ai was Israel's failure and God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his word through Joshua that Israel would come under judgment if they took of the spoil from Jericho. Achan didn't obey that command and God was faithful to the promise he made to judge his people for their sin. Everything about Joshua 1 through 21 testifies to the power and faithfulness of God. There is no glory here for Israel and how well they fought. There's no glory here for Joshua and how well he led. It all goes to God. These verses celebrate only him. More specifically, they celebrate that there is no enemy of God's people he cannot defeat, and there is no word of God's promises that will ever go unfulfilled. No one can stand against his people, and no word of his promises will ever go unfulfilled. It reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 8 when he wrote this. He said, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the things that he's promised. Just as in Joshua 21, Paul reminds us that no one can stand against God's people. And Paul reminds us that no word of God's promise to his people will ever go unfulfilled. Years after what God did for Israel and Joshua in the land, he did something that that far better displayed his power and faithfulness. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead. There has never been, and there never will, be something that God does that better or more powerfully demonstrates his power and his faithfulness. That no one can stand against his people, and no word of his promises will ever go unfulfilled. Now, perhaps you're thinking, those things were so long ago. 
thousands of years ago. But I would love to see God reveal his, his power and his faithfulness today in my life. Well, first of all, I would say to that, there is never going to be, once again, there's never going to be a better demonstration of God's power and faithfulness than in what Jesus did on the cross for you. But God is not just faithful and powerful in the past, the distant past, and then ask his people to just hang on for something in the distant future. God acts every day toward us as a powerful and faithful God. Sometimes we get to see his power and faithfulness in how he preserves us in the same desirable situation for years on end. Maybe he gives us good health. Maybe it's a job that more than meets your needs and God keeps you there for years, providing everything that you need. This is God's power and faithfulness in your life every day. Other times we get to see his power and faithfulness and how he provides this or that 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 comes up as a need in our life. You pray and God provides what you ask for. But sometimes, maybe even for a long, long time, our lives are full of instability and things that we wish were not there. Maybe we even ask God to meet this need or that need or take this away and he just does not provide. And that's when we feel this this tension between God did all these amazing things in the Old Testament, but I have not seen his faithfulness and power recently in my life. And I would say to you that even in that state, even when we are frustrated every day by our circumstances, God shows you again and again his power and his faithfulness. Every day when you repent of your sin against God and you ask God to forgive you, God does something that shows how powerful and faithful he is. The God of the universe against whom you sin forgives you when you ask him to because of Jesus Christ, just as he promised. Every day that you face a world that suppresses the truth it knows about God, every day you face that world, but you still go to sleep that night trusting in Jesus Christ, God has shown you his power and his faithfulness in preserving your faith one more day, just as he promised. And every every day, when we are provoked to anger, to selfishness, lust, or greed, But instead, we respond with faith, love, selflessness, and contentment. God has shown you his power and his faithfulness by producing in you these things as the fruit of the Spirit, just as he promised. These are the evidence of God's power and faithfulness in your life every day, regardless of what your circumstances look like. He is continuing his good work in you, which he promises to complete at the day of Jesus Christ. So from Joshua 21 today, we've seen God's concern for the faith of his people. We've seen his power against all of our enemies and his faithfulness to every word of his promises. And so today, for whatever else we may be thankful for, let us be thankful that our God who made all things, who created us, 
is so concerned for our faith that he committed himself to it in the cross. And he has taken various measures to nurture it every day. And he exercises his own power in us to see it through to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Christ Jesus in turning us from darkness to light, turning us from rebellion to faith. Thank you that you have also provided for our faith every day, showing your concern for our faith in so many different ways. Thank you for the leaders that you give to us to watch for our souls. I pray that you would help Brian and myself to be faithful in this task that we might give you a good account. Thank you for the responsibility and the privilege it is to watch out for our brothers and our sisters. Make us faithful to exhort them that they might not be deceived by the deceptiveness of sin. Help us not to wait and wait and wait until it is too late to say what needs to be said. Father, thank you that you are faithful that you are powerful, that in your concern for our faith, you have the power and you're faithful to use it for our good, to nurture our faith through the power of your spirit, through applying to us the benefits of Jesus Christ's death, for forgiving our sins, for preserving our faith. You are so gracious to us. And I pray that this week as we go out and, and face this life in the old creation to which you have called us, that you would continue to be faithful to us, as you have promised. We know that you will. In Christ's name.